Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. <laughs> The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind, where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. Our network of shows includes... American Biography. The Bohemian Podcast. How Jamaica Conquered the World. The History of the Papacy. The History of England. The History of Alchemy Podcast. Mid-Atlantic. When Diplomacy Fails. 1001 Conversations. History of Anglo-Saxon England. The Secret Cabinet from Germany. Ten American Presidents. The History of Germany podcast. The Agora Podcast Network.com. Listen to Agora today. Just before we get today's show underway, I'd just like to quickly plug some of my other podcasts that I produce. I produce a podcast called Mid Atlantic for people that are interested in US and UK politics which features me speaking to pundits and political practitioners about the state of politics in the two respective countries. If you like things a little bit more laid back, I produce every Friday a small music and interview show called Friday 15. Both of those can be found on a podcatcher of your choice. So Mid-Atlantic or Friday 15. Now on with the show.
Ulysses S. Grant, born Hiram Ulysses Grant, was born April 27, 1822, and died July 23, 1885. He was the 18th President of the United States, serving from 1869 to the end of his second term in 1877. Ulysses Grant was born in Point Pleasant, Ohio, which prior to the railroad boom was very much an agricultural and agrarian existence. If you lived there, you were most likely a farmer. And if you got your goods from point A to point B, it was by horse, either by horseback or by cart. So Grant grew up surrounded by farming. He very much started to romanticize the idea of being a farmer. And as we'll see later in life, he'll try to make farming work for himself and fail miserably several times. Now, the second thing that really starts to mold Grant at a very young age is his love of horses. He gets a reputation as being a very good horse handler at a very young age. And his father had had a stable, and he was a tanner, which, for those of us who don't know what a tanner is, it's a person who cures hides by using chemicals to make them last longer. Grant loved the stable side of it, where he got to be around horses all the time, but he hated the tanner side of, of his father's business. And one of uh, Grant's early gaffes in business in life was uh, his father decided that they needed a new horse. And so he sent Grant down to the owner of the horse to negotiate. And he, he had told Grant before, Ulysses, start with the price of $20. If he pushes back on you, tell me offer him $22.50. And if he finally pushes you over, give him $25. So Grant immediately proudly goes up to the owner of the horse and says, My father said that I'm to offer you $20. And if not, I'll go to $22.50. And if not that, I'll go to $25. So it doesn't really take a rocket scientist to figure out what he ended up paying for the horse. But this is really the first documented story of what was a lifelong series of gaffes from a business perspective. Now, Jesse Grant, Ulysses' father, was a tanner, but he was also involved in local politics. He was never big on a state level or never did anything federal. But he did hold a couple local posts. And what made him interesting was the fact that he was a Whig, which, prior to the world we live in now, where you have the Republican and the Democrat parties, you had a, a Whig party which was dominating politics for a very long time in U.S. history. And a lot of the power base for the Whigs was in the South. And in order to be prominent in the Whig party, you either had to be a Southerner who was a slave owner, or you had to be a Northerner who would appease Southern slavery. So to have Jesse Grant be an abolitionist as well as being a Whig kind of gives you an idea of what Grant's home life, Ulysses' home life was like growing up and the political sentiments that surrounded him every day. He also was surrounded by slaves working side by side with them on farms, you know, odd jobs here and there. But you really start to get an idea of what his philosophy looked like as he was growing up. He loved horses, he was surrounded by slaves, learned how to respect them, romanticized farming, and was hating the tanning trade. So Jesse Grant had no idea what to do with him. Ulysses is very listless, and it's a situation where Grant's been educated, but he was never really an exemplary student. He wants nothing to do with the family business either. So Jesse Grant decides, I want to get a free education for my son. I have no idea what he's going to do. So 
I wonder if I can get him into West Point. Now, West Point then, as it is today, you have to get a nomination to get in. And back then, what happened was you would go and you would take the entrance exam once you got there. But the nomination, there was no prerequisite from an academic standards perspective. You would go, and if you pass the test, you would get in. And there was a local family, a local prominent family, where that had sent their son, and he failed the entrance exam. So Ulysses was nominated to take his place. Jesse Grant loved his son, but he also said, great, I'm getting my son a free education. He's listless. He's going to go into the Army. We'll get him a career. So Grant was really not too excited about going to West Point. But what he was excited about was the Odyssey-like journey it would take for him to get there. He was going to take a train for the first time. He was going to see the canals in Pennsylvania. He didn't think he was going to pass the examination either because, like I said, he was not a very great student. So he just kind of took as long as he possibly could to get there. He loved seeing Philadelphia. He saw New York. And he arrived as late as he possibly could to his entrance exam. But he had an issue when he got to West Point because in the haste to get the appointment out to West Point, the nomination was made in the name of Ulysses S. Grant and not Hiram Grant. So he basically had two choices. If you want to stay at West Point, you have to change your name to Ulysses S. Grant, and that's how he got his name. The West Point of the late 1830s, early 1840s, while being a prestigious organization, it probably isn't as prestigious as the one we think about today. Grant really wasn't that enamored with going to West Point to begin with. He kind of looked at the whole experience as just an opportunity to have a big adventure. In fact, the first year he got there, Congress actually, in the idea of having a peace-loving, non-militaristic republic actually put a, a vote forth to defund West Point, which obviously got shot down. Grant was famously hoping that it would get shot down so he could say, look, I tried this and, and I, West Point doesn't exist anymore, so I can just go home. During the war, actually, for many different reasons, in uh, 1863, Congress was really upset with West Point as an existence because a lot of the Southern generalship came from West Point. So a lot of folks in Congress, a lot of congressmen and senators looked at it as an institution that had traved the Southern generalship. It, the year is 1843, and granted had a pretty average academic standing at West Point. He really wanted to be in the, in the Dragoons, which is what we would call the cavalry in the more modern sense. But that posting was full, so he was really stuck with the infantry, and he became quartermaster. He graduates, and he is stationed at a place called Jefferson Barracks uh, near St. Louis. And his roommate is a gentleman named Fred Dent, who has a sister named Julia, and they become married. And at this point, tensions are starting to arise with Mexico. Well, you have to go back a little bit and realize that Mexico had possession of most of what is the modern United States today, all the way up to Oregon, Colorado, uh, parts of the Louisiana Purchase were contested. And 
This was an era of manifest destiny for the United States. We were starting to get our national identity. We were moving westward, and this was starting to create tensions with Mexico. Now, Texas had been a territory of Mexico, and back in the 1830s, General Santa Ana was the de facto dictator of Mexico, and the Texians, who were the, the residents of the Texas territory, had kind of a semi-independence from Mexico and a level of autonomy that Santa Ana was sick of and wanted to quash. Uh, some of this involved slavery and other issues like that, but bottom line is Santa Ana marches and you know everyone knows the story of the Alamo, but the most important part of the Mexican-Texan Independence War, the most important battle was the Battle of San Jacinto in 1836, where Sam Houston captures Santa Ana and demanded Texas independence at the border of the Rio Grande River per the Treaty of Velasco. Now, Santa Ana had to give in to whatever their demands were. Santa Ana takes this treaty back to Mexico, and it is not ratified. Mexican legislature decided it would be at the Nueces River further up north. So you have a situation where after the independence of Texas in 1836, a really uneasy peace is maintained between the New Republic of America and Mexico. But by the 1840s, manifest destiny overtakes the situation and it really grips America. Texas is subsumed into the Union and President Polk books to start a fight with Mexico. So the U.S. sends an army of observation under Zachary Taylor down to the Nueces River. And they know that the Mexicans would look at them crossing the Nueces as a affront to their sovereignty. But they're basically down there to pick a fight, and they do. And, you know, they, they skirmish with Mexican troops and say that the Mexicans fired first and, you know, we're up in arms and we're at war with Mexico and marching down to the Rio Grande. The New York Tribune, May 11, 1846. The War with Mexico. Congress appropriates $10 million and proposes to raise 50,000 volunteers. Mr. Harrelson's bill, amended, has passed both houses. In the House, by a vote of 174 to 14, the title is so amended as to read, An Act to Provide for the Prosecution of the Existing War Between the United States and the Republic of Mexico. It authorizes the President to call for and receive the services of 50,000 volunteers and appropriate $10 million to defray the expenses of the war. The bill providing for the increase of the rank and file of the army and to augment the number of men in each company from 40 to 100 and increasing the term of service from three to five years has passed both houses. At this point, Grant really kind of gets his first view of wartime politics. and He's kind of disgusted with it. You know, later in life, he'll say that that this was a bully war where a, a, a larger force, you know, was beating up on a smaller force. And it was there for nothing more than to expand slavery. So besides getting the first glimpse of wartime politics, he gets a real good view of two different kinds of generals. One is Winfield Scott and the other is Zachary Taylor. And they both have two very different styles. Scott was very much a traditional polished general, wore every decoration he possibly could on his uniform, and more of a strategist, a back behind the scenes, led his underlings, the, the actual troops in battle type of general. 
where Zachary Taylor in, in the Army of Observation was more of a rough rider, get himself out into the front lines type of general. And Grant really started to identify more with Zachary Taylor. As much as he would come to admire Winfield Scott's style later in the Mexican campaign, he really felt like he had a much better feel for what was going on in the battle by being out there himself. And he would do this many times in the future in the Civil War. And he also found that he was very brave and really did not wilt under battle. So outside of Grant having these two great role models to learn from, there were bigger politics at the time. President Polk, who was a Democrat and the president at the time, had a real conundrum. Winfield Scott was a popular Whig candidate from 1812, and he was a war hero from that war. And Polk looked at it as if he propped up Winfield Scott, that he would be basically electing his, his uh, successor. So he propped up Zachary Taylor to start out with. And Scott had a really good plan of invading Mexico via Veracruz. So you have to picture the Mexican-American border as we see it today, and you have Taylor's forces on the border clashing with, with the Mexican forces up there. And you have Winfield Scott essentially wanting to outflank and go via the Gulf of Mexico and take Mexico City that way via ship. Now, it was a good plan, but it, politically it was bad for Polk. Eventually, though, Taylor is making gains, but they're not obviously being as expedient as they can be to win the war. So Scott's plan gets greenlit. Grant's force gets attached to Scott's invasion force. And Polk accedes to the plan to send Scott to march on Mexico City by landing in Veracruz. Once Winfield Scott received approval from President Polk to invade Mexico via Veracruz, Winfield Scott detached soldiers under Zachary Taylor's forces, which were in northern Mexico, and attached them to his own forces that were invading via the sea. And Grant was part of these soldiers. The, the plan worked amazingly well, and Grant was a, a quartermaster, which was great because he loved animals, but at the same time, it really kind of kept him in the rear guard which was kind of frustrating for him. He said many times that he was scared of war and the thought of it. So Grant uh, noted, noticed that he really got worked up about the anticipation of battle a lot, and, and he was really scared going into his first battle. But once he became under fire, he, he really became a different man, and he became very calm, cool, and collected. Whatever that fight-or-flight mentality most of us have, he just seemed to lack. And at the Battle of Chapultepec, even though he was a quartermaster, he became really un un impatient with not being in, in, you know, on the front lines. So he grabbed a horse from a fallen captain and rode into battle on the front lines uh, to the point where he even uh, grabbed a howitzer and above the objections of a, of a priest, went up to a church steeple and held down Mexican artillery, uh, which he was recognized for and, and promoted for. Lo moving forward... They just kept winning battle over battle over the Mexican forces. And really, what was interesting to Grant and what stuck with him later was the quality of troops in the U.S. over the quality of troops of the Mexican forces. The Mexican forces were, in his mind, kind of a surf-like force, not very inspired. While they had great numbers, they really weren't a quality fighting force. And the U.S. forces, in kind of a risky move to a lot of people at the time, were hundreds of miles away from 
uh, shore and, and their supply lines and fighting with an inferior force. But because of the way that, that they were organized and their generalship, they, they won. And to the point where they got to Mexico City, the government absconded and they almost didn't have anyone to negotiate with to settle a peace treaty with. So in 1848, the, the war... Is, is over. It's an army of occupation, and the the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is signed. The border is now the Rio Grande. Texas is no longer the frontier. We now have the territories of Colorado, Utah, California, which is a very very big deal because in 1849 the gold rush starts, and that's a really transformative event for the United States. Grant, in reflecting about this, even though he thought it was an unjust war, he was impressed that the U.S. stopped where they did because in his mind, and he's probably right, the U.S. could have gone, taken everything Mexico had all the way down to Mexico City. There was nothing Mexico could do to stop them. The war turned into an occupation at that point, and Grant did a bunch of different things as far as exploring Mexico. He really loved the serenity of Mexico and even tried some mountain climbing, which went horrible for him, where he got sun-blinded. But he just really got bored. And this is the first time in his life, and this is going to be a a couple times, where Julia really became something that weighed heavily on his mind. She became detached. She became distant. Her letters became more frequent. She would start to taunt him about other suitors. And he really became very, very anxious to get home and get on with his married life. It was one thing for him, you know, the the political side of the war was an unsavory thing for him, but he really came to life when he was in battle. But once he became a became a part of a war of occupation and not on the move and not fighting, he really just became bored and wanted to get home. So at the end of the war, his friend, who he would meet again later at Fort Donaldson, Simon Bolivar Buckner, lent him money to go home, and he did. So Grant, after he he takes his friend's money, he would meet again at Fort Donaldson later during the Civil War, and he goes home and he decides, you know, do I want to be in the military anymore? And this is another case where he didn't really have a passion for the military, but his choices really were, do I want to work in a tannery or do I want to work in the military? And he kind of moves on to a good part of his life where in 1848, he marries Julia Dent and he starts having that domestic life that he really has been longing for for a long time. And while not prosperous, they're comfortable and they're finally together. They start having babies. And after a brief stop in Detroit, they end up in Sackett's Harbor off Lake Erie where there's a military encampment. And they're really enjoying living there. They have a great social life. In 1852, while at Sackett's Harbor, Julia Grant is pregnant again. They're in domestic bliss, but Grant gets orders to proceed to Fort Vancouver. And this is really kind of a blow to him because Julia is pregnant. You have to put yourself back in the times. Going from what was then the East Coast to Fort Vancouver, which is on the Pacific Coast, is not a simple thing. There's no trains. There's no transcontinental railroad yet. 
There's no real maps even that you can count on. The best way to get down there is to go all the way around the tip of South America by boat, which is a very, very long trip. So what they do is they decide to go in an overland route over Panama. In 1852, he sets off for Fort Vancouver. And the way they decide to do it is go overland through Panama. And his quartermaster experience really comes in, in handy here because this group is really not set for it to, to go overland. It's it's a really it's a jungle infested area with mosquitoes. He actually kind of acts as a quartermaster again and gets mules and and negotiates uh, you know to, to procure a bunch of mules to get everyone over land. After a perilous trip overland through Panama and, and back into a ship, finally arrives at Fort Vancouver. He's, he again starts becoming depressed and listless. There's not a lot going on there. He gets some really good experience as far as seeing the conditions that the Indians are living in. And that really later in life will shape his views on as a president because that's really the only thing as president he's very passionate about as an issue is the treatment of Indians. However, he's in an area where a lot of prosperity is happening very quick with, with the gold rush. Not so much in Fort Vancouver, but eventually at Fort Humboldt in Northern California. What this really forces him to do is figure out ways to supplement his military income. Julia's pregnant. They have kids. They really want to get ahead. He really is afraid of squalor. He tries to start a farm. He gets into an investment with one of his friends, loans him $1,500. His name was Elijah Camp. That basically was his entire salary that he had earned since leaving Sackett's Harbor. And then his friend convinced him that he should tear up the, the promissory note because he didn't want to have that hanging over him. So he's basically out 1500 bucks. All of his money is gone. He's tried to plant crops on, on the river, which the crops fail. He's just not doing very well. And so at the, at the tail end of his tenure at, at Fort Vancouver... He's becoming depressed again. His wife is becoming distant. She's not writing as much as she used to. And in 1853, he got assigned to Fort Humboldt, which is in Northern California. And he really starts to get depressed. And he's universally accepted that at Fort Humboldt, he, he really turned to the bottle. And I think, you know, there's patterns of behavior that where he starts drinking. And a lot of times it's because he is listless and he's without Julia. And those two things together really took a, a very depressed army captain and, uh, and really toyed with him. And rumors really started circulating throughout the entire army. You have to remember the army wasn't that big the way we think of it now. And this will come back to bite him later when he's trying to, to seek an appointment when the Civil War breaks out. His uh, commanding officer, Buchanan, heard that, that Grant was intoxicated off duty and disparaged him for it. For whatever reason, Julian never was really interested in coming out West. He would constantly ask her, you know, when can you come out? I, I have the money to get you out here. And she was never interested in it. So I think he felt like he was losing grip on his family. For that reason, he resigned the army and set back off for home. In 1854, Grant has left the army, and he's heading back to Galena, Illinois. And the, the United States that he's leaving to go back into is very much in in conflict right now, and it's it's about the expansion of slavery. 
it was great we won the Mexican American War from from the American Republican standpoint. But the the dirty underlying pressure there was that we have all this extra territory, how are we going to organize it? Even back to the foundation of our country, there was pressure on how are we going to expand slavery. One of the highlighting bills of the time was the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. What this did was this gave the, the states popular sovereignty to decide whether they wanted slavery in their own territories or states or not. That, while that sounds great, what you have is, is a dogfight in every state to make it a slave state or a free state. And every time a, a territory is organized or a state is brought into the union, there is, a, there's all of this pressure. And really you end up getting a compromise where you know you'll you'll add a state for every slave state but it just really ratcheted up the tension it's really just limping forward and and avoiding the major issue while these compromises are great at holding off conflict they really aren't addressing the issues and you have to imagine is that every time you you add an additional territory to the united states or try to organize another territory it just adds a little bit more steam to this, to this teapot that's about to explode. So Grant goes back to Galena, Illinois, and he has this ideal that he wants to become a simple farmer. And this is American lore, you know, put down the spade and be a Cincinnatus and uh, go till the land after you've done your, your service. He even builds a, a home called Hardscrabble that Julia absolutely hated but never would admit it to him. That's I think it still stands today. But uh, he built his own house, but again, he failed at farming. He received a loan from Julia's father to, you know, to, to start up his farm, but he just could not make it profitable. He started selling firewood to supplement the income. And then after, after many years, he decided that he had to finally cave in and take a job as a tannery clerk at his father's store. So at this point, if the Civil War hadn't happened, Grant probably would have been someone we have never heard of. His family was poor. He was doing exactly what he didn't want to do, working in a tannery for his father. But he was with his family, which was always something he wanted. Leading up to the 1860 election, in walks a gentleman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who is the Republican candidate. The Republicans to the South represent the ending of slavery. And Lincoln, despite the fact that his sentiment was always in the beginning to preserve the Union rather than to abolish slavery, becomes the lightning rod of anti-Southern sentiment. And he ends up winning the election in 1860 with no support from the South. The Guardian, Manchester, Tuesday, November 20th, 1860. Summary of news, foreign. The details respecting the presidential election furnished by the New York journalist, not complete, but they not only assure us of Mr. Lincoln's election, but show that the Republican Party has obtained far more than the requisite number of votes for his return. It is calculated that New York, Pennsylvania, the New England states, New Jersey, and the Northwestern states give him 171 electoral votes, or 19 more than the majority required for the election, the total number of electoral votes being 303. 
it is not improbable, too, that this majority may be further swelled by the result of the elections in the Pacific states of Oregon and California. We have no account of the manner in which the Southerners have received the intelligence of Mr. Lincoln's election. The next advices will no doubt be filled with fierce Southern declamations and protest, but it's not very likely that any Southern states will do anything mere than talk loudly about succession. So the battle lines are drawn. The Democratic Party splits into Northern and Southern factions. The Northern faction is, is sympathetic to the Union. The Southern faction is obviously sympathetic to the Confederacy. Not to a man, as we'll obviously see later as Andrew Johnson becomes the vice president as a Southern Democrat. But with Lincoln winning the election, the table is set. You've had incidents like John Brown attacking Harper's Ferry, and in December 1860, South Carolina secedes from the Union, and shortly after, Fort Sumter is fired upon, and the war is underway. The Observer, London. 11th of August, 1861. The Civil War in America. The Battle of Bull's Run. Great defeat of the Federal Army. The Battle of Bull's Run, which we announced in a second edition of The Observer of last Sunday, has proved to be a most decisive one, and so great was the success of the Confederates, or so disgraceful the panic of the Federalists, that nothing but the forbearance or ignorance of the generals in command on the other side prevented their easy approach and victorious entry into Washington. From the various accounts which have reached us, or which have been made public, we are enabled to give a full and complete account of the whole of this very extraordinary battle, one of the most remarkable of modern times, and a fitting sequel to that bloodless bombardment of Fort Sumter, with which the campaign was opened some weeks since. Now, when this happened, Grant almost became a new man. He realized that he had a purpose again. Even though he was depressed when he was in the army and he was at in meaningless posts, he really became drawn to conflict. He thought it would just be simple for him to just lobby one of his all of his old war buddies and, and get a uh, get a commission. However, again, as I mentioned before, the, the army is not as big as, as, as it is today. And he really was dogged by the rumors of his alcoholism. So he started lobbying and he even famously lobbied George McClellan, who wouldn't really help him out because he was afraid he was an alcoholic and gave him the runaround. So at the end of the day, he could have joined and been a captain, but really, for a man who was really down on his luck, he kind of really felt his oats and felt he needed to be a colonel or higher. What really kind of helped him out was the fact that he moved to Galena, Illinois. Now, remember, he was from Ohio originally, and, and the, the Dent family was from St. Louis, where, which is where his farm was. But Galena, Illinois, was where he decided to be a clerk for his father at, at the tannery. And Galena found itself in a situation where they where they were given the mandate to to muster a division of volunteers, but they had no war heroes. And Ulysses S. Grant was the only war hero there. So he was offered a job at, at training and recruiting the volunteers. The first time Congressman Elihu Washburn would come, would really boost his career was at this point, And he was given the command of the 21st Illinois Volunteer Regiment. Now, 
Grant really started making waves at this point because the previous commander was kind of just a partier and, and just a soldier's appeaser. They would go out drinking constantly. You know, there was no discipline. And Grant came in and, and whipped them into a firm fighting force right away. And the enlistments were actually supposed to be brief for the, the volunteer regiment. But Grant actually helped inspire the men to stay on by gaining support of the men. And through his discipline and through the respect, he was stern, but they knew what to expect from him. And so he was a soldier soldier. Everyone was really impressed by him, by his service, and he was promoted to, to Brigadier General and sent to Missouri by General Fremont, who was soon to be replaced by Halleck. At this point, there was the Confederate states, as I've mentioned before, but there were also the border states, the neutral states, the ones that hadn't really decided whether they were going to be in the South or in the North. Kentucky was one of these states. There was a lot of Southern sentiment. There was a lot of Southern modalities as far as economies went with slavery and plantations, but it was very close to the North and there was a lot of patriotism there. Neither side wanted to be the side that invaded Kentucky and pushed Kentucky one way or another. And Grant was right in the middle of that. So at this point, the Confederates have done as much as they can to try to position themselves because they know that they are not going to be in a position to reinforce themselves and resupply themselves in the same way that the, the North is going to be able to. So they're trying to grab as many supply depots as they can. And Grant kind of knows this. So Kentucky at this point is a clean slate. And he is at Patica, which is right on the border. And he knows that if he can get the Confederates to invade Kentucky first, he can then move on to the Confederates, sway Kentucky to stay with the Union, which is exactly what happens. So he took Patica without a fight, and he let the Confederates take Columbus, and they violated sovereignty first. And a lot of people really was keen in keeping Kentucky into the fold. And a lot of people love to talk about Vicksburg and, and the Overland Campaign, but I think that this was one of the, whether it was completely his idea or not, but this was a very important thing he did by keeping Kentucky in the fold. So for those of us who don't know the, the geography of the United States that well, the Mississippi River is the easternmost border of the Louisiana Purchase and the westernmost border of what was the previous post-1812 Treaty America. The Mississippi River cannot be impressed strongly enough how important it was, not only from an economic standpoint for trade, but from a military standpoint. There's all of these big ports overlooking bluffs that command the river. Keep in mind, if you want to move an army effectively, quickly, you're doing it by boat or you're doing it by rail. And the rail system is not where it is later. So controlling the rivers is something that is so crucial to the Union and to the and to the Confederates. And the Confederates own a lot of these forts, Vicksburg being one of them that we'll talk about later. But Grant is where he is in, in Patica, near where the Mississippi meets the Ohio River. These are super highways that he finds himself in the middle of. And his job quickly becomes to figure out a way to, to gain control of the Mississippi. Grant is a general. He's a brigadier general. He hasn't fought a proper engagement yet. He's shown some political savvy by goading the Confederate to violate the sovereignty of Kentucky first, but he hasn't really tested his mettle as a commander. He knows he loves war, being in a battle. He knows he loves that, but he feels this pressure of being in charge of men's lives, and that's something that's really weighing on him. 
So Belmont is a town on the other side of the Mississippi from where he is. So Grant has decided to take his reconnaissance of force across the Mississippi to Belmont, where he knows the Confederates are. He can see the campfires and decides to take his troops across the river. They do a great job. That They're not there in force. The Confederates are, are kind of split up. The intelligence is lacking. You don't really know where your enemy is completely in force at this point. So they find a smaller force than, than they had been expecting, if they were expecting much at all. And they overran the camp, but quickly the Confederates rally and chase him right back to the Mississippi River. And Grant had to be rescued by gunboats. Now, this is one of those things where both sides claim victory. Grant went and displaced a camp, so he, he plays it up to the Union press. The Confederates say, we chased them back across the river, so it, it's a victory for them. So, But it's the first time he's really tasted battle as a commander, and he knows he can do it. He gets his confidence. After Belmont, he goes back to quarters. He's tasted battle. He knows what he has to do. He knows that in order for the Union to control the waterways, they need to attack the rivers into the Confederates. And he gets the idea that he is going to take the war to Tennessee via the Tennessee River against the Forts Henry and Donaldson. He goes and, and lobbies this idea to Halleck in person. This is the first time that he meets his commanding officer, and Halleck is just cold. He's, he tells him, basically, you're crazy in no way, and just go back and wait for orders. It's, it's important to kind of go back to where the, the way the military was organized at this point. There's no single command that controls the Navy and the Army. Sure, there's the commander-in-chief, Abraham Lincoln, but as departments, they're not under the same stewardship. They don't take orders. They basically are two independent bodies that act and do what they want. Grant knows that if he's going to be successful, he's going to have to cooperate with the Navy. And he starts doing that for the first time very effectively when he co-ops Andrew Foote, who is a very tried-and-true Navy commander, to basically sign on to the plan. You know, Grant gets together with him and says, look, if we take these forts, we're going to help cut the Confederacy in half. And Foote decides to co-opt this plan and takes it to Halleck. And Halleck, this time, is ecstatic because he basically knows he has someone who is very respected commander can babysit his general, who he kind of thinks is a little off in the woods and and is uh, probably a little reckless. In a lot of ways, Grant is a little bit reckless. I alluded to it before. One thing Grant will be known for is not hesitating. While we laud him for it now because of his victories, back then, war was a very organized thing. You didn't move unless you had your supply lines set up. You didn't move until you had perfect intelligence. Grant really became very good at Assessing the situation as it was, seeing the pros and cons, seeing what resources he had, what resources he didn't have, and proceeding accordingly. Halleck could not have been more opposite, and he really wanted to put reins on Grant. That's why having Foote as a naval partner in this attack up the Tennessee became so crucial for Grant getting the nod to go. So in February of 1862, they head up the Tennessee River towards Fort Henry. Now, it wasn't just the Tennessee River that, that they were trying to strangle. There was Fort Donelson on the Cumberland, which was another another river that led into the Ohio. Their general plan at this point was attack Fort Henry. And based on that success, Grant had in the back of his mind that I'm going to push straight on the Cumberland and take Fort Donelson as well. Halleck knows that he has a babysitter for his errant general. 
but he's not comfortable with his errant general. So in the background, he's lobbying to get a replacement for Grant. Grant doesn't know this. In a lot of ways, Grant's desire to move fast saved his military career because he had Halleck scheming against him. Fort Henry becomes more of a naval victory than anything. Foote does a great job of shelling the emplacements. They abandon it. Yes, Grant is going up the river. He disembarks his troops. They take it. But in a lot of ways, this is a naval victory. While Grant will get credit in the next battle for saying unconditional surrender, there's a lot of people who say that Admiral Foote was the first one who demanded unconditional surrender from Fort Henry, and that's where Grant got the idea the second time around. So after Fort Henry, Grant decides he's going to move immediately on Donaldson. And this is February. His troops are, are cold. He doesn't want to keep them out in the open for too long. And he's feeling his oats. But this is the first time I think that Grant gets his first dose of hubris because he becomes very much a attack, attack, attack general. And it's great that he's taking the initiative to the enemy. And that's what will drive his success. But he almost gets wiped out at Donaldson because he moves his troops up and they're close to Donaldson. It just was inconceivable to him that the Confederates would take the initiative and attack him. So Grant was actually in conference with Admiral Foote. The Confederates decide to attack. They break out with a great flanking maneuver under General Forrest, which is one of the greatest cavalry commanders the Confederates brought to bear during the war. He was just kind of shocked that the Confederates would take the initiative. They pushed McClernand back, who is his general on the left flank, and for some reason they decided to not push their victory. Pillow, who was the commanding general at Fort Donelson, Grant did not have a very high opinion of him. Later had said that if I caught him, I would have released him right away, so he'd keep being a general. He knew who Pillow was from the Mexican-American War and frankly thought he was a coward. And that may have had something to do with why he didn't press his advantage. But at the end of the day, the Confederates really squandered their, their chance at really rolling the Union over. Grant's commanders are beleaguered. They're advising retreat. They want to take their troops back to the boats. But Grant arrives on the scene. There's been multiple accounts of this scene happening, but really what he brought was a matter of factness, an order, and calmly ordered everybody up and ordered an attack. They retook the ground, and through some inadequacy of command by pillow, everyone was back where they started the day. So that night, the Confederate generals have a war council, and, and as I mentioned before, these are not the best and brightest generals that the Confederacy has put forth during the war. And they wired Johnston, the commanding general of the theater, that they had won. But that night, Floyd, the corrupt U.S. Secretary of War, who sabotaged the U.S. prior to the Civil War and prior to the South seceding, had been moving U.S. war material to the South to make it advantageous for the, the Confederates to seize it when the South ended up seceding. So he's in charge here. And he is really worried that if he gets captured, he's going to be dragged back in shackles to Washington, D.C. and not given any quarter and be charged with treason. Second in command is a gentleman by the name of General Pillow, who I alluded to Grant's opinion of before. And then the third in command is a gentleman by the name of Simon Bolvar Buckner, the same gentleman who lent Grant money at the end of the Mexican-American War to get home to his family. They know that they are not going to be able to hold out. 
I think that they may have been a little bit premature, but this is really a case where the leadership really kind of drove what occurred after. It was said that Calvary General Forrest was disgusted with the leadership and called them cowards, but they agreed to abscond and escape. Floyd yielded command to Pillow, who then yielded command to Buckner, that his job was to get the best deal he could. Buckner sends a message to Grant in the morning. This is, again, his war buddy from the Mexican-American War. There's a lot of goodwill, right? This is age of chivalry and warfare, where, where surrenders are negotiated, swords are handed to the victorious general, then handed back. And he's basically, let's talk about terms here. Grant's most famous memo that he ever wrote that ended up giving him his famous name, Correspondence between General Buckner, Confederate Army, and Ulysses Grant, Brigadier General, United States Army, on the surrender of Fort Donelson, 19 February 1862. General Buckner, Confederate Army, yours of this date proposing an armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation is just received. No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender will be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. I am, respectfully, your obedient servant, signed, Ulysses S. Grant, Brigadier General Commanding. General Buckner's Letter of Surrender, Headquarters, Dover, Tennessee, February 16. Brigadier General Grant, USA. Sir, the distribution of the forces under my command, incident to an unexpected change of commanders, and the overwhelming force under your command, compel me, notwithstanding the brilliant success of the Confederate arms yesterday, to accept the ungenerous and unchivalrous terms which you propose. I am, dear sir, your very obedient servant, S.B. Buckner, Brigadier General, Confederate States of America. And this is a humongous victory for the Union. This is the first time he pops up on Lincoln's radar screen. And he is promoted to, to Major General. Now, Halleck is, again, very cold. You know, keep in mind, he's basically scheming behind the scenes to replace Grant. Halleck doesn't even congratulate Grant. He congratulates the Navy. Grant decides he wants to move on to Nashville. This is where he has his first big, big problem with, with Halleck. Halleck wants him to stop. To Grant, I see an objective, I see where the enemy is, and I'm going to fight the enemy. So he's on the tail end of these pair of, of victories. He takes off and goes to Nashville. You have to remember what communication was like here. Halleck could want to reach Grant and send a rider to, to find him. He may or may not be able to find him. Grant may leave a message for him if he's out of telegraph range to send a, a rider to go telegraph Halleck. But for one reason or another, their communication is busted. And Halleck is telling him to stop and starts admonishing him for not stopping and giving him a full account. I think he was just aghast at the pace that Grant was moving and just felt like he had an out-of-control horse. Halleck orders Grant's arrest. Grant stops, calls his bluff, and says, if you think I'm acting out of line, you can replace me. Halleck, a lot of people think, was admonished by Lincoln because Lincoln saw what happened at, at Henry and Donaldson. He had a lot of other defeats and frustrations on other areas of, of the war in having Grant, who was eager to fight and eager to take the battle to the enemy, that was something Lincoln wasn't going to do without. Moving forward to April of 1862, Grant was moving up to Tennessee and he was at Pittsburgh Landing where he was surprise attacked by Confederates under Johnson and Beauregard. He really took it on the chin hard the first day. 
but by being reinforced by Buell the second day, it was a really a tactical victory for the Union. But it was really a really ugly day from a casualty standpoint. And Grant, even though he, he had a great reputation in the press, there was a lot of feeling that it, the only reason that they, he didn't get massacred was because Buell reinforced him and saved the day. He didn't lose his battle. It was really goes down as a tactical victory for the Union. But Lincoln, again, gets pressure to replace him. And Lincoln saved him and said the famous quote, I cannot spare him, he fights. But what did happen was Halleck comes out and quote-unquote rewards Grant by making him the second of command, basically the vice presidency of the army. He's not directly controlling troops anymore. It's pretty much the polar opposite of what Grant loves about being at war. He considers resigning and he puts him for a transfer, but his friend, General Sherman, talks him out of it and tells him to stay the course and basically says, look, if you abscond now, you're giving up everything you've accomplished so far. Just hang in there. In July of 1862, Halleck is promoted and moved to Washington, which is probably a good thing for him because he's an administrative general. He's not, as I mentioned before, he's not one who thrives in in the thick of combat. Grant is back in charge of the Army of the Tennessee. Now, going back to this stage, you have to look at the way that the Army was organized. Grant was basically in charge of a big part of the Western Theater, which is the Army of the Tennessee. There's the Army of the Potomac that everyone knows of, that that fought the famous battles against Lee and and Gettysburg. But this is the way it's broken up. So Grant is basically in charge of, of an army tasked with taking the War of the Mississippi. At this point, Grant's vindicated somewhat. He's back in charge of the Army of the Tennessee, but he still has to deal with politicking. And with all the issues he had when he was actually a president, it's amazing how well he handled it. So what does the Army of the Tennessee need to do? They need to take the Mississippi. And the big, ugly elephant in the room of the Mississippi River for the Union is Vicksburg. Vicksburg overlooks a big bend in the Mississippi River where Confederate batteries have great fields of fire on any ships that want to go up or down the Mississippi River. For the sake of commerce, for the sake of control, Vicksburg has to be taken. Around this time, the Emancipation Proclamation is issued. The Emancipation Proclamation by Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States. Whereas, on the 22nd day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States, containing, among other things, the following, to wit, that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons, or any of them, in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. Grant is in a bit of a conundrum because you have all these free slaves and you don't know what are you going to do with them. So he is in a a couple instances put in a a position where he has to on the fly 
take a bunch of free slaves and organize them into working brigades and set up ways to pay them and work with them. So that's happening at at the background at the same time. They're on the west side of the Mississippi River, and the Confederates is on the east side. So getting across would involve being under this amazing firepower of the batteries of Vicksburg. They had all manners of ideas, draining swamps, building canals, dams. Uh, But what ended up happening is Grant decided to again enlist the help of the Navy, this time Admiral Porter. What became called Grant's Gamble, he leveraged Admiral Porter's gunboats further south while having Sherman up in the north get kind of a demonstration action to fool the Confederates into thinking that that's where the attack was coming from. Grant portages his troops across with great cooperation with the Navy south of Vicksburg. It's great. You're across the river. That That's wonderful. But he's operating on a bit of an island now. His supply lines aren't where, are where they were before. And this is the first time where he's really operating off the land. It's very prudent to have your supply lines set up. So if you fall back, you have a position to fall back to where you're fully supplied or want to press the advantage, you, you can move up supplies and press. Grant's really operating on his own here. While it's great to have your supplies, it also kind of hamstrings you. And that was really kind of counter to the way that Grant fought a lot of times. So here he's living off the land, but he's also kind of caught potentially in a pincer movement between Johnson and Pemberton, who Johnson was in Jackson, which is probably 20 miles away from Vicksburg, and Pemberton's at Vicksburg. So he wants to go attack Vicksburg, but he could have Johnson at his back. So he needs to deal with that. So Grant is caught in a position where he has two strong armies. So what he decides to do is he decides to go attack at Jackson. Now, what he's done here is the same problem he would have had at Vicksburg. So he quickly takes Jackson, removes that threat there, and then he goes in and has a, a battle with Pemberton, and Pemberton is, is forced to go retreat to Vicksburg. While it's a victory, he still has to be very wary of the enemy to his rear. So Grant realizes that he needs to be prepared to repel an attack at any point from his rear. So he basically sets up kind of a dual line of trenches, one facing one way, one facing the other way towards Vicksburg, just to kind of cover himself. So it's it's a really uncomfortable position for him to be in, exacerbated more by the fact of where he is kind of out on an island. His first instinct, of course, is to assault, which fails miserably. They lose a lot of men, and he realizes that he's going to have to settle in for a siege. And he does. And he becomes really kind of bored again, but there's more rumors about his drinking at this point. It's around this time that an important person in his life kind of takes hold, a gentleman by the name of John Rollins, who became part of his staff. He's this very straight-laced gentleman who kind of became Grant's minder. You know, at a siege, there's not a lot to do except for sit around and wait for the enemy to capitulate. So Grant would be drunk, apparently, a lot of times. And there's reports, the northern reporters wouldn't talk about Grant's drunkenness. There's an instance where he apparently had a horse accident because he was drunk. But his friend John Rollins really became a big, important part of his life where he could kind of put the reins on Grant when he needed to. So as I alluded to before... He had a a general under him with ambition uh, named General McClernand. And McClernand was really lobbying to have his own military department free of Grant. Grant knew this and at one point had even asked his friend General Sherman to keep an eye on him to 
maintain his uh, his sovereignty over McLernan's forces. But Grant had for a long time been waiting for him to screw up, and he finally did. And before the fall of the siege in June, McLernan published a letter publicly outlining what the, the Union orders were, which was a big, big, big faux pas, almost treasonous in Grant's eyes. And that allowed him to finally sack him. So that was a bit of pressure that was finally off of Grant. There's just this stalemate that has evolved. It's 1863. It's almost the 4th of July. On the eastern seaboard, the Army of the Potomac under General Meade is fighting the Battle of Gettysburg. The Confederates have taken the war to the Union. They're in Pennsylvania. This is the high water mark of the Confederacy. Lincoln is needing victories. The, the Union is beleaguered. So you have Grant besieging Vicksburg in the Western Theater, and you have Meade fighting General Lee at Gettysburg. On the same day, on July 4th, Vicksburg surrenders. Same day in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, General Lee surrenders. The Times-Picayune, July 26, 1863. The amount of prisoners captured at Vicksburg was about 23,000 altogether. Among them were three major generals and nine brigadier generals. About 90 pieces of artillery were captured, of which several are unfit for use. 40,000 stand of arms and between 35 and 40 stand of colors were taken by the enemy. The amount of ammunition surrendered is immense, there not being less than six months' supply stored away in the magazines. There was a useless saving of ammunition during the siege. Had our men been allowed to keep up a fire on the federal lines, they could never have approached to within 30 yards of our line, much less have erected forts that closed to us. Taking a view of the whole campaign, we can only come to the conclusion that General Pemberton was outgeneraled in the most glaring manner by General Grant. After the fall of Vicksburg, you know, there, there were some negotiations, and for the most part, Grant wanted unconditional surrender again. He did give them some minor concessions, mostly by virtue of the fact that he wanted to not have to have all these Confederate soldiers as prisoners. He allows them to be paroled and moves out. Vicksburg is in the Union again, and the Union has control of the Mississippi, essentially cutting the Confederacy in half. This is such a big deal for the Union, and a lot of people look at this as the beginning of the end, not only on the West, but when Lee is rebuffed to Pennsylvania. This is really the beginning of the end for the Confederacy. So it's, it's November 1863, and Grant has been promoted to Major General in the regular army. Now there's the regular army and the volunteer army. At this point, that Grant, his commission came into the volunteer army. And this gave them the division of the Mississippi, including the armies of Ohio, Tennessee, and Cumberland. At this point, there's a General Rosencrantz who Grant, I think, a little unfairly didn't think very highly of after during and after the war and didn't treat very nicely. But he was defeated at the Battle of Chickamauga, and he retreated to a place called Chattanooga, Tennessee. In a lot of ways, he was bottled in and besieged. As Grant goes down there, he rallies the forces, carries a place called Missionary Ridge with a direct assault, and basically kicks the, the Confederates out of there. By virtue of this success, in March 1864, he's promoted to Lieutenant General. Lieutenant General is something that is sacred in American lore. The only person who'd had this rank before Grant was George Washington. And it, it's, it's a rank that needs to be authorized by Congress to be given. Basically, everyone in the Army is his subordinate. He goes 
to Washington to meet Lincoln and receive the honor in person. One thing I really give Grant a lot of credit for at this point is he worked with Halleck. I mean, Halleck was under him. He could have railroaded Halleck as much as Halleck had tried to railroad him. But it's it's funny when you look back in Grant's memoirs and you look at all of the, the historical paper that went back and forth between these two guys, they really kind of had a good working relationship after that. But Grant's at the top of his game. He's the chief of the army. Grant realizes that the wars, in his mind, has hit a tipping point. Not everyone in the North thinks so. Just so, just to put us back in perspective here, there's another election coming up. Lincoln is not for sure going to be reelected. There's a lot of pressure by the Democrats to push for an end to the war. So Lincoln, in a lot of ways, is thriving on victories. He needs victories and he needs success. In hindsight, we can look at it right now and say, well, this is definitely where the the Confederacy starts to recede into the wilderness. But at the time, people were war-weary. Lincoln, again, as I mentioned, in the past, he had to replace a lot of generals for inactivity. He is worried about losing the election that's coming up. You know, we kind of have to spend a few minutes on this because in American history, there's a lot of examples of presidents overstepping their authority with generals. Or in fairness, it could be the other way around too, but there's a few examples where generals worked really well with presidents. And the relationship between Lincoln and Grant was one that, in my opinion, really defined the end of the war. Because Grant, through their conversations and correspondence, Grant began to understand from Lincoln what he wanted politically. Yes, he had to fight a war, and yes, he had to be independent of it, but he understood what Lincoln wanted and what Lincoln needed from a a victory standpoint and the way that he wanted the South to be treated. That would end up affecting the way he gave peace terms at Appomattox. But when he gets this promotion to lieutenant general, this relationship really becomes a working relationship between the two of them. They're going to correspond a lot over the years. They're going to meet several times. Lincoln is going to trust him to talk with the peace commissioners. But the bottom line is these these two are very much in lockstep. There's a lot of examples like Johnson in Vietnam and Truman and MacArthur. You know, these two understood where the line was. And that was very, very important with the way that this war is prosecuted. Grant's overall plan became to hold Lee to the north and let Sherman run and conquer in the south. The South had a, I don't think irrational, but a very romantic dedication to keeping Richmond intact. And they did not want to lose Richmond. And Lee had, forget the direct quote, but it said something to the effect that if we lose Richmond, our cause is lost. So Grant basically has a two-pronged approach, two different tactics, one of which is he's going to reach out and take his forces reach out and grab Lee and not let him go. So in order to affect this, in May 1864, the Overland campaign starts. He knows he has the numbers, he has the supply, the manpower, and as long as he knew he he didn't screw up too bad, he was pretty sure he was going to win up north. In the Battle of the Wilderness, he kind of became a little bit of a butcher. I mean, he gets unfairly, in my opinion, really knocked for being a butcher, but he kind of had a matter-of-factness about, I have more people than you do. I'm going to outlast you. And he would relentlessly attack. He looked at it, the more he attacked, the quicker he'd bring about the end. 
after the Battle of Spotsylvania and Cold Harbor, where Grant assaulted an entrenched position several times. Gets the, the nickname The Butcher. Now, he, he does get an unfair rap here, in my opinion, because after Cold Harbor, that was the last direct assault on entrenched positions that he undertook. There's a lot of people who said he wouldn't listen or learn from his experiences in war, but I think after that fact, it's not necessarily true. He definitely had a matter-of-factness and an understanding about his ability to replenish soldiers and out-resource his enemy, but I don't necessarily think he was a butcher. The Guardian, London, England. Monday, May the 23rd, 1864. Several battles, attended with enormous slaughter on both sides, have been fought in Virginia. The accounts informed us that there had been heavy skirmishing between the main Confederate and Federal armies on the 5th and that a battle was expected to be fought on the 6th. The Federal army, being then on a line parallel with the road from Germania Ford to Chancellorsville, and resting its flanks on those places respectively. According to unofficial information received by the federal government, after the day's fighting, General Grant had driven General Lee three miles and was believed to be pursuing General Lee, who was marching in two columns towards Richmond. We now learn that General Grant had officially reported that after the engagement on the 6th, General Lee retreated during the night and was pursued by the Federal Army on the morning of the 7th. During that day, General Hancock's Federal Corps pressed forward and passed through Spotsylvania, while the Federal headquarters were advanced to a place 20 miles south of the battlefield. At the same time, Fredericksburg was occupied by the Federal Cavalry, and great hospitals were established there. A New York telegram of the 12th next announces that there had been terrific fighting and that a bloody battle was fought on the 10th near Spotsylvania Courthouse. The Federals, we are told, attempted to storm the Confederate position and lost from 7,000 to 10,000 men, but captured three guns and 1,200 prisoners. Losses during the campaign were estimated at 15,000 men, but the only intelligence respecting the slaughter on the Confederate side is a statement said to be derived from General Lee's own reports that on the 5th or 6th, General Longstreet was severely wounded and three other Confederate generals were killed or wounded. In 30 days since crossing the Rapidian River, he had amassed 55,000 casualties. Napoleon used to brag about spending 30,000 lives in a month. That's almost two times what Napoleon had done. And we're still not at World War I numbers, but the, the world was starting to get a feel for what modern warfare was going to look like. And it, and it wasn't pretty. Of course, you know, there becomes a broad issue of what do you think is more human as a general? making war brutal and quick or drawing it out, minimizing battlefield casualties. So I think Grant actually ended up doing multiple strategies here, letting Sherman use one while keeping Lee to the north. But for Grant, it ended with the siege of Petersburg, which was nine months of stalemate. He gets close to Richmond. He has Lee trapped. 
He has his hands around Lee's neck and he can't get away. And this really kind of, a lot of people call this the first battle of World War One. You know, they did things like blowing up trenches, and the, which was a horrible thing for the Union. They lost three guys for every one of the Confederates. But there was trench warfare. And instead of this grand armée approach where you parade onto the battlefield, you have your battle and you parade off, this really became a situation where Grant kept his enemy close and would not let him escape because he knew the South wanted to protect Richmond at all costs. While this is happening, he has, I mentioned Sheridan as, as a cavalry commander, the Confederates are still on the run. They're still raiding. They're still trying to move around. Sheridan really became a key to Grant, allowing Grant to keep Lee where he was while Sheridan attacked and uh, maneuvered and harassed the Confederates between Sherman and Grant. So Sherman has he's taken off from Nashville, and he is being told to go through northern Georgia on his way to Atlanta. And again, we're in the election season. Again, looking back, we can see that this is going to turn out well, but the people are war-weary. And there's a part of Lincoln, there's a part of the generalship, there's a part of the Union that really wants to take the war to the part of the South that was so instrumental in starting the war. North Carolina, Georgia, you know, Virginia had seen a lot of battles in the West, but North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia had not really taken it on the chin a lot yet. So there was a little bit of that we're going to take it to them mentality too. So Grant orders Sherman to charge to Atlanta. And he starts down through northern Georgia and starts outflanking Johnston. And Johnston gets replaced because he keeps falling back. But I think this is unfair because he was outnumbered and he was in a tactically bad position as far as knowing what he had to defend and what he had to fall back on. Sherman really decides to use a total war mentality when he attacks through Georgia. And he's vilified to this day because of it. Doing things like using POWs to remove mines that the Confederates had placed in the soil to try to slow them down. Burning crops, living off the land. Again, to this day, if if you go to Georgia and try to say something nice about General Sherman, uh, you're probably going to get something nasty said to you. So on September 2nd, 1864, Sherman sacks Atlanta. Which is a big deal because it's it's a railroad hub, it's a big city, and a lot of people think it directly leads to Lincoln getting reelected. Sherman becomes the new darling. People want him to become the new lieutenant general and replace Grant. Now keep in mind, Grant's been very successful, but he's been sitting in siege for a long time. And everyone in the North and South have been getting newspaper reports about Sherman's triumphant march to Georgia. So... Grant is thrilled by Sherman. So to Sherman's credit, he wants nothing to do with even talk of of replacing Grant. His quote was, General Grant is a great general. I know him well. He stood by me when I was crazy, and I stood by him when he was drunk. Now, sir, we stand by each other always. Because of Sherman's victories, the South really sees the writing on the wall. Peace commissioners are brought up to Fort Monroe. There's a lot made of, of Grant's role with the peace commissioners. There was... Some historians think that he really quibbled a lot with, with the peace commissioners. And for those who of us who don't know, the peace commissioners were the famous scene from the Lincoln movie where they sent three commissioners up to negotiate with Grant and eventually Lincoln, where they're quibbling over the 13th Amendment. Let us end the war now in time to repeal the 13th Amendment. There, there's a lot written about it, and I'm not going to wade too deep into it, but the, the net of it is was... 
Grant knew what Lincoln wanted. The only thing he really insisted on was um, any language that was sent in correspondence to Washington. He wouldn't send it if it included mention of a separate nation of the Confederacy. There's a lot of people who think he did a lot more than that. It says a lot that Lincoln gave him that amount of trust to kind of handle the initial talks there. In March of 1865, Petersburg is finally captured. And Sherman has reached the Atlantic coast, and he's turned north to go through the Carolinas. Again, we're taking the word of the people who started this. And Sheridan is brilliantly keeping Johnson uh, away from moving up north to link up with Lee. In April, Richmond falls. Grant reaches out to Lee to discuss peace terms. And as Lee is surrounded on April 9th, Lee surrenders. And there's this comedy of errors where Lee knows he needs to surrender, but they have messengers going back and forth and they can't find each other. And Grant's staff is telling him not to proceed directly to Appomattox where Lee is because they think it might be a trap. But Grant really takes the measure of Lee and he knows he can feel that the end is coming. He goes to Appomattox and and meets with Lee. It's almost when, when they get together, the, the reason they're there almost escapes both of them. They chat about mundane things for a while. As then they get, to the, they, they get to the matter of fact. The Times, London, England, Latest Intelligence, America, Surrender of Lee, New York, April 10th. General Lee has surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to General Grant. Secretary Stanton has ordered a salute of 200 guns to be fired from every arsenal, fort, and military headquarters in the United States in celebration of the event. After Appomattox and the surrender, Grant decides to take a break. And, you know, he's been not necessarily on the move for a long time, but uh, this is the first real lull in fighting that he's had. And he actually gets an invite on April 14th to go to Ford Theater with the Lincolns and see a play that night. And Julia, uh, very diplomatically, reminded Ulysses that he had not seen his kids in a while and that it might be a good idea to go take the train to New Jersey and go see his kids. So he politely declined and told the Lincolns they would do it another time. Grant gets on the train and uh, gets off the train in Philadelphia where he's stopped and is informed that the president has been shot. And the immediate thought that comes to his mind is that the Republic has been dealt a death blow from a reconstruction standpoint. Lincoln was a Republican. They wanted to empower the freedmen. They wanted to pass amendments to ensure voting rights. And Andrew Johnson, who might have been the most racist president the United States has ever had, was from the Democratic Party. And the two actually came together in the National Unity Party, which we'll get into a little bit, and uh, were elected together in 1864. But Andrew Johnson wanted to put everything back where it was, not having slavery in name, but still having a firm strata of white power. Grant immediately gets back on the train and heads back to Washington, D.C. So as I would mentioned before, the, the ticket that, that was elected in 1864 was not a Republican ticket per se. It was the National Unity Party. 
Lincoln decided to have as his vice presidential candidate a gentleman by the name of Andrew Johnson, who was a Democrat who did not side with the Confederacy, which was a big deal because he was a senator from Tennessee. Put looking at it, parties through today's lens, it's tough to think of the Republicans as as the ones that were really pushing race rights and and, and rights for the coloreds. That's really the way it was. Andrew Johnson, as I mentioned, was a Democrat, and Democrats, whether they were in the North or the South, tended to lean or have sympathies with the Confederacy. So when Grant finds out that Lincoln is dead, he now knows that Johnson, who is going to put up as many roadblocks as he can to helping the freedmen and helping Reconstruction the way that Lincoln had viewed, is going to be in charge. The national unity ticket, while it may have sounded like a bad idea to some, turned out to be a swimming success as your National Union Party garnered 212 electoral votes to the Democratic Party's 21. So Grant is back in Washington, and Grant is a rock star. He has celebrity status. People, while not saying it out loud, look at him as the heir apparent. In a lot of ways, it's very similar to Ike after World War II. A lot of the negativity that you would probably think some of the the South had for a guy like Grant, he was able to dodge because Sherman became kind of the guy that everyone hated because of his march through Georgia. Furthermore, he had a lot of respect from the Southern generalship. Lee famously one time admonished a man in a pub for saying something bad about Grant. There was a lot of respect from the, the Confederate generals that had fought against him. You know, when you have a, a man like Lee banging the drum for, for Grant and, and backing him as, from his character, that's a really big deal. So Johnson is in a conundrum. Uh, he's got this war hero, this rock star. I, I mean, if, we, if they had the paparazzi back then or Entertainment Tonight, Grant would have been on the TV every night. Johnson hasn't truly pinned Grant down yet. And the reason that is is because he's made Grant general of the United States. The war is over, and it's become a peacetime army. And he decides at this point that he's got to get rid of him somehow. He needs to move him out of the public spotlight. So Grant realizes that Johnson is looking at him as a political rival. So Grant, while knowing that he is the heir apparent, he cannot be overtly political because he is the general of the army. And he has to kind of shadow box with Andrew Johnson because Johnson can't admonish him publicly but he has to alienate him as a rival. So he suggests things like, let's send Grant down to Mexico to do a fact-finding mission about trade. And Grant sees that for what it is and, and politely declines that. And Sherman goes instead. What he does accept is he leads a fact-finding mission down into the South to see what Reconstruction looks like, to see what the conditions on the ground are for the plantations. And it's mostly ceremonial tour that Johnson sends Grant on, but he's basically just kind of languishing at this point and in in limbo. Grant needs a job. He looks at the presidency as something that he has earned. People are telling him that he's earned it, and he is biding his time. Johnson, again, is trying to put him into a situation where he can co-opt him. Now, because Grant is a general, he hasn't come out and said whether he's a Democrat or Republican. Now, remember, the Republican Party is relatively new, and Grant has voted Whig in the past. So he's done a pretty good job about keeping his sentiments relatively to himself. I mean, he definitely has Republican leanings. But 
there is a war brewing between the radical Republicans, again, the senators and lawmakers that want to have an active role in the Reconstruction and actively lobby on behalf of the slaves, the freed slaves, and the Johnson Democrats who want to do anything they can to avoid that. Congress passes the Civil Rights Act of 1866, defining citizenship. So in 1866, Johnson has been president for a year. He's been trying to work with the Republicans, but they're very philosophically divided. And 1866 is the year where he, quote-unquote, breaks with the Republican Party because the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which basically defines citizenship, is kind of a way of getting around people saying, oh, well, these slaves aren't citizens because of X or because of Y. Johnson tries to veto it, and this really poisons the relationship between him and Congress for good. There becomes a cycle where the Republican-led Congress will try to pass legislation to enforce Reconstruction, and Johnson will veto it. There's this deadly, nasty circle of veto, pass, veto, pass, veto, pass, and they override a lot of his vetoes. But it gets to the point where he is absolutely admonished and pretty much hated by Congress. So in 1867, Congress passes the Tenure of Office Act. Basically what this does is it restricts Johnson's ability to just replace any cabinet member at a whim. And what this was aimed at was Secretary of War Stanton, who opposed Johnson and wanted to be a very active radical when it came to Reconstruction. Basically what would have to happen was Johnson would have to consult Congress and get approval to replace Stanton. And thumbing his nose at Congress, he decides to just replace Stanton And who is he going to put in his place? General Grant. This accomplishes a couple things for him. It makes Grant his man, makes him part of his administration, which Grant wanted nothing to do with. It also gives you an idea of of the kind of guy that, that Andrew Johnson was. Johnson tries to insert Grant into the process and eliminate Grant as a political rival at the same time. Grant was basically saying, look, if you do this, this is a violation of federal law, and it could come with jail time. I want no part of it. So Johnson removes Stanton anyway and convinces Grant to be an interim appointee as the Secretary of War. Grant agrees to accept the temporary post, and Grant said, I will give it back when Stanton was reinstated because it would be illegal for him to keep it. Grant broke with Johnson, and according to a lot of people who were close to the administration, Grant had promised to stay on permanently. And Grant broke that promise and reinstated Stanton. Andrew Johnson was enraged. This, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, is Grant's first overtly political act. And this poisoned the pill between Andrew Johnson and Grant forever. So Johnson is furious. He's bitter. He calls Grant out publicly in the press. And Grant kind of just steers clear of it and keeps quiet because he doesn't really have much to gain by engaging Andrew Johnson. He's not going to be a real political foe in 1868 because he's obviously impeached. So his feud with Johnson actually makes him a darling for the radical Republicans and, if anything, firms up his stance in the party. But again, at this point, you're seeing Grant become a politician. Grant looks at the presidency as his. In a lot of ways, he probably just needed a job, and people were telling him, this is what you need to do, this is what you deserve, so this is the next logical step. He takes the high road on the impeachment proceedings. He, Andrew Johnson is impeached in February of 1868. He remains quiet. He can just watch Johnson, a political rival, fade away into the night. 
The Observer, London, England, Sunday, the 8th of March, 1868. It has been decided to impeach President Johnson. It is stated that in the course of proceeding, the committee of two appointed by the House will proceed to the bar of the Senate and inform that body that the House of Representatives have impeached Andrew Johnson for the commission of high crimes and misdemeanors, which they are prepared to maintain by proof. The committee will then retire, and the Senate will then notify the House that they are prepared to receive any further communication on the subject. After receiving such message, the Committee of Seven appointed by the House will prepare the charges and specifications in form and present them to the Senate. The trial will, it is understood, commence on the 13th. So in 1868, he starts campaigning for president, and the only real thing he had going against him was the quote-unquote Order Number 11, or the Jewish issue. Order Number 11 explicitly stated that Jews were not allowed to sell cotton in the Mississippi area in in an attempt to destroy the black market and keep prices at at a normal rate. He, He starts this long trip throughout, starting in the Northeast, across the Midwest, and ends up in Chicago to accept the nomination for president. And his acceptance speech is very simple, saying, let us have peace. They pick Shulier Colfax as his running mate, and the Democrats put up Horatio Seymour and Francis Blair, respectively, as president and vice president. Said very little. There was it really wasn't a lot about issues. No one knew a lot about what he really believed in. The only thing he really ever talked about a lot was Indian policy. He'd experienced, again, the, the Indians and saw the destitute living conditions they lived in when he was in the Pacific Northwest. The key thing that he had to latch onto for the Republicans, though, is they wanted to continue Reconstruction in the way that that Lincoln had wanted it done. Democrats wanted to end it and put the white upper crust in charge. And the Republicans were going to federally enforce everything and enfranchise the slaves. So the election happens. The freedmen voting for the first time help his cause tremendously. The Guardian, London, England, Thursday, November 5th. 1868. America by Atlantic Telegraph. Presidential election, New York, Tuesday, 8 p.m. The presidential election has engaged the attention of the whole country, and as the day has been remarkably fine, the vote polled has been unusually heavy everywhere. The returns received up to this hour, apparently, indicate the election of General Grant. He has gained decisive majorities in the following states. Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut. The returns from New York are less decisive, and it is possible the Democrats have been successful. There's a tradition for those of us who don't live in the United States that the presidents go to inauguration together. And what typically happens is the president-elect will come up to the White House in a carriage, pick up the president, and they ride together. The animosity was such between these two, between President Johnson and President-elect Grant, that they broke tradition for the first time ever not going to the inauguration together. So March 1869, 
President Grant is inaugurated as the 18th president in the United States history. He has to pick a cabinet. Again, there's traditions to, to keep in mind here. Typically, cabinet picking is you submit your nominees to the Senate for confirmation, and the, the Senate looks it over and gives gives an up or down or gives feedback or suggests changes. In this case, Grant is such a celebrity, he just goes around and ignores that and just submits his names without consulting the Senate. And again, you have to, it gives you an idea of what kind of credibility and what a force of nature it was at this point that they did not push back on him for that. The Attorney General was a very important role, as you might imagine, with the Reconstruction. Uh, Ebenezer Hoare was not fully on board with Grant on Reconstruction, and more importantly, as we'll get into later, opposed the annexation of Santo Domingo. And he wasn't a really politically advantageous state for a cabinet member being from New York, because he already had one from New York. He was asked to resign, uh, which erupted in controversy when uh, Grant's asking him for him to resign was made public in the newspapers, which was uh, kind of seen as a faux pas. The second attorney general, which in my opinion was the, would have been the best one for America, was Amos Ackerman. He was from Georgia and absolutely believed in Reconstruction and Grant's vision of it. He probably would have helped Grant in a lot of the scandals he got wrapped up in. He ruled against Grant, land grants for Union Pacific, prosecuted the, the Ku Klux Klan, and would have been a boon for Reconstruction. But he was a radical Republican who went after the KKK. So what happened, for, for those of us who don't know what the Ku Klux Klan was, it was formed after the Civil War, and it was an underhanded group bent on preserving white supremacy, using intimidation, uh, trying to harass freedmen from voting. And uh, Ackerman went after them with vigor, to such a vigor that political pressure was put on, on Grant to get rid of him. So by far the best nomination he made in his cabinet was Hamilton Fish as his Secretary of State. Not only was he a great standing board for Grant and helped him avoid some pitfalls, but probably the, the crowning achievement of Hamilton Fish's diplomacy was the quote-unquote Alabama claims. And this was a dispute with Great Britain. The Alabama claims is na are named after the CSS Alabama, CSS standing for a Confederate ship. England had been building ships for the Confederacy in private shipyards during the, the Civil War. And those ships did extraordinary damage to the merchant marine of the United States. In 1869, the U.S. sought monetary damages from the British. Hamilton Fish negotiated with the British. There were radicals like Charles Sumner who pushed for $2 billion in damages and as much as ceding Canada from, from Britain as far as a penalty for building ships for the Confederacy. Made absolutely no headway with the British until Hamilton Fish was able to get Grant to agree to take the ceding of Canada off the table. Eventually, they agreed to arbitration and Britain gave the U.S. $15.5 million in the Treaty of Washington of 1871. The Tribunal of Arbitration, using the authority conferred on its members by Article 7 of a treaty, by a majority of four voices, awards to the United States of America the sum of $15,500,000 in gold as indemnity to be paid by Great Britain to the United States of American government for the satisfaction of all the claims referred to the consideration of the arbitrating tribunal conformable to the provisions contained in Article 7 of the treaty, and in accordance with the terms of Article 11 of the treaty, the tribunal declares that all the claims which have been referred to it for adjudication are hereby fully, perfectly, and finally settled. 
The court furthermore declares that each and every one of the said claims, whether the same may or may not have been presented to the voice or laid before the tribunal, shall henceforth be considered and treated as settled and barred. Clipped from the National Union and American, 17 September 1872, Tuesday, 1st edition. Now, this sounds like kind of a minor deal, but the thing that really comes out of the Alabama claims is our special relationship with the British. This is lauded as the greatest arbitration ever affected in international law. We, we take our relationship with Britain for granted today. Back then, the, at the end of the Civil War, the border with Canada was still militarized. There was a lot of forts, there was a lot of money being spent on, on that, and this in effect not only settled the issue of the Alabama claims, but demilitarized the Canada-U.S. border, set us onto a path where we became very close as nations. And the way that Hamilton Fish handled this treaty is really the reason we have our special relationship with Britain. So another nomination of note in Grant's cabinet was Eli Parker, who was the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. And going back to Grant's presidency, the only thing he really came out in, in, in favor of a policy re- he really had was Indians. Now, going back to the days of Andrew Jackson and, you know, basically up to the point that we are, are at, the United States had basically had what was called a removal policy when it came to Indians. We see you on the land, we are going to eject you. So Grant's policy when it came to Indians was was couched in his quote-unquote peace policy of 1869, which basically founded the reservation system. And what it was going to be was, we are not going to eject these Indians. We're not going to treat them as savages. We are going to try to civilize them. Now, that sounds great to us today, but you really need to look back at the underlying racism of that. Because it was, there wasn't a feeling of, we are going to honor your traditions, and we are going to set you up to live in peace with those traditions. No, we are going to put you in these Indian reservations, which were basically going to be bubbles where we could bring in missionaries, train you on how to be proper Americans the way we all are Americans. And Eli Parker became a very effective diplomat in in setting up treaties with the Indians. He had to navigate through treaties that were negotiated with the Confederacy and honor those with, with the different Indian nations. In the background... There's a lot of new thought about race. Not only do we have Indian issues we're dealing with, but we've also just liberated a bunch of African Americans. How are we going to introduce them into society? Not everyone is on the same page. There's some people who think that we need to keep them in servitude in some way, shape, or form. Likewise, people look at Indians the same way. There's people who look at Indians as the only true Americans, the purest of Americans. There was a radical group of Reconstructionists who thought that government meddling in Indian affairs was a travesty. And even though Eli Parker, who was a Seneca Indian and the first Indian cabinet member in United States history, they looked at him as an Anglicized American, a tainted American who drank, an Indian who joined the army. And there was a bunch of Americans who wanted to, who resented that and wanted him out. So there was a lot of political pressure put on Grant to get rid of Eli Parker because he wasn't a true Indian to some people. Ironically, that was probably the worst thing that could have happened because after that point, uh, the Department of of Indian Affairs 
went went really sideways and it became a, a beacon of corruption, as did a lot of Grant's presidency. But what happened was you would have an Indian reservation and you would have an entrepreneurial merchant who, in a lot of times, would partner up with a priest or missionary to you know, bring the religious angle of Protestant America ideals and ethics and, relig- and religious feeling to these, uh, these tribal nations. But you'd also have an entrepreneur who was in charge of single-handedly procuring all of the supplies, food, goods, everything that the, the nation needed in a trading post. So these guys were paid about 1500 bucks a year, which was not a lot even back then. So they supplemented their salaries by negotiating unfavorable contracts for the Indians. A lot of times the Indians would not get the, the goods at all or they'd get inferior goods. And the entrepreneurial merchants at the trading posts would make off like bandits. This is really an important part in Indian-American relations because we go from a policy of we're just going to kick you off the land and remove you to actually trying to live side by side with the Indians as imperfect as it may have been. At one point in Grant's presidency, he even entertained Indian chiefs at the White House to discuss treaties and the, the respecting of, uh, of, of borders of the reservations. And they had a famous kind of awkward uh, reception at, in the West Wing of the White House where there was a lot of not understanding each other's customs. But uh, again, it's, it's important from the perspective that Grant made an effort to, to reach out in, in this way. So after he's elected, the, the 15th Amendment is passed. And what basically what that does is it basically you cannot prevent anyone from voting based on race. Grant is on a roll. He really wants to protect the, the freedmen or the former slaves. Again, kind of parlaying on onto his Indian policy, while it sounds great to us that he wants to help the freedmen, there was still a very slanted and racist view of helping the slaves. And one of Grant's ideas was, I don't even know if slaves can get a, a fair shake in the United States. Let's try to annex Santo Domingo, or what is now the uh, Dominican Republic. So Grant decides to look offshore for another solution to his problem of how to deal with the freedmen fairly. Island of Hispaniola, which has the countries of the Dominican Republic, or Santo Domingo, as it was known back then, and Haiti, has been in turmoil during the 1800s. The Haitians have won their, their independence, and Dominican Republic, or Santo Domingo, as it's known back then, is possibly being threatened by invasion by, by the blacks there. Preliminary report on San Domingo. A special bearer of dispatches arrived here today from the San Domingo commissioners, bringing a preliminary report on what they have done. The details of these dispatches cannot be obtained for publication, but it is learned that the commissioners substantially confirm the hint thrown out by the correspondents that the greatest obstacle to the annexation of Santo Domingo is the threatening attitude of Haiti. That republic is giving its moral, if not its physical, support to the revolutionary leader, Cabral, in his incursions along the Dominican border. Haiti seems to think that if Santo Domingo is annexed, the United States will attempt to secure the rest of the island and thus swallow up that little republic. It is intimated that she will fight first and thus compel the United States to make an armed occupation of Santo Domingo from the outstart. So after the failure of the annexation of Santo Domingo, Grant really starts to get 
mired in scandals. A lot of it is based on his personality. He's very much a put my blinders on and I see an objective. I've heard it explained that he looked at the U.S. government the same way he looked at the army. You give orders and people obey. Even if he knew that that was not the case, that was kind of the his mentality when dealing with people. You know, again, with the way he tried to deal with Charles Sumner during the annexation crisis, just going over to his house to get him to fall in line. Either way, he became very naive politically and did not see the... He, he, did not become very good at seeing the forest from the trees and handling the, the political aspect of being president very much. He had a bunch of scandals. The most famous one, which actually was not his, was the Credit Mobilier scandal. The Credit Mobilier of America scandal, that was really one they inherited from Lincoln. And it's rooted in Western expansion and manifest destiny. The Union Pacific Railroad was created in 1864 to create the railroad from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Coast. And the government offered loans ranging from 16 to 48,000 a mile, and uh, basically the foundation of the, the Transcontinental Railroad. And Credit Mobileer was a construction company that was formed by Union Pacific executives to look like a chosen firm that the Union Pacific Railroad had agreed to do business with and shelter the, share, the shareholders. The goal of the Union Pacific people became to fleece the government for every penny in constructing the railroad because they figured that the railroad was going to be so susceptible to Indian raids, so tough to maintain in the West, that they were going to make more money off of government on the construction versus actually running the railroad. Bribes were paid to congressmen in a complicated stock process that they could then sell on the open market and make a, a ton of money. Credit Mobile would grossly overcharge Union Pacific for the work. The railroad turned out to be very expensive to build and was not progressing as planned, and it broke during the re-election of campaign of 1872. Even worse, Vice President Colfax was involved, as was future President Garfield, although he was exonerated. The Credit Mobileer scandals really represents the Gilded Age to many Americans, even if it wasn't his scandal per se, and was really a big embarrassment for him. One of the most famous scandals he was involved in was the Black Friday or Gold Standard scandal. So during the Civil War, the U.S. had moved to a greenback monetary policy, meaning it was not backed by gold. One of the Republican tenets was restoring the public credit, which would be putting us back on the gold standard. So two scheming financiers tried to corner the gold market for themselves. And Grant, as, as we've mentioned before, was very naive when it came to business and he didn't really understand finance. And when it came to the matters of finance, a lot of times it was the last person who talked to him in these matters that, that kind of had the final say. So Grant had people in his ears telling him he needed to sell gold to bring the, the price back down and, and stop the speculation, loosen up a monetary policy for the United States because it's really tough for the average Joe when you know there's a lot of gold speculation. So the price of gold is rising, which is good for the railroads, but bad for farmers. And these two gentlemen by the name of Fisk and Gold approached Grant through his brother-in-law, advising him not to sell gold because it would hurt the farmers. Grant didn't bite, but then was advised by another friend that the government shouldn't get involved in the gold market. These two gentlemen kept pushing and pushing and sending letters, and he finally realized he was being had. In the meantime, gold had jumped from the mid-30s to $141 an ounce, and Grant authorized the government to sell $4 million worth of gold. Stock prices fell and costs of agricultural goods dropped as well. In an interesting wrinkle, 
Julia was implicated as possibly being involved. There was a suspicious story about Julia receiving $25,000 in the mail the day that the crash happened, but they were never brought in to testify. The, the efforts of these two gentlemen, Fisk and Gould, resulted in, on September 24th, 1869, being known as Black Friday, when $4 million worth of gold was released onto the market and gold prices collapsed. Financial firms collapsed, banks collapsed. It really kicked off a recession that really didn't recover in, until 1870. So while Black Friday was a, a big mismanagement by Grant and, and definitely a scandal, there was definitely out-and-out corruption that, that was rife in his administration. There was a Star Route scandal which focused around contracted mail carriers that would carry mail to remote areas that were being granted inflated contracts to help pay bribes. There was a pay raise that Grant gave himself, uh, which basically bumped the pay up by two times a year to $50,000. That may have been necessary, but Grant was not necessarily financially you know, doing well to begin with. So it was kind of looked at as another part of his corrupt administration. There was the trading post ring where War Secretary Belknap takes extortion money so a contractor can fleece Native Americans at Fort Sill. Same thing with his Secretary of Navy, Robeson, from a company wanting naval contracts. Just a lot of people taking money, and uh, a lot of this is starting to break, definitely towards the end of his first administration and during his second. The one that, in my mind, is the ugliest for Grant was the Orville Babcock affair. Orville Babcock was a Civil War general in, uh, in the Union Army. He knew Grant well, and Grant made him his private secretary. So whiskey taxes were collected in the form of excise taxes back then, which was, you know, per gallon, per per whatever quantity they decided. In 1875, Babcock was caught colluding with agents in St. Louis who were supposed to be collecting the excise taxes on whiskey. And what they would do is they wouldn't remit the tax, but cut the profits. It was even so bad that a coded letter was sent from Babcock to the agents in St. Louis with details on how to run the ring. And at this point, Grant has had scandal after scandal after scandal. He knew Babcock personally, and there was a lot of people who think that Grant was involved in this as well. Grant decides that this is the hill I'm going to die on. He's had so many scandals, he's just sick of it. He's going to stick with Orville Babcock to his detriment. So Grant decides to testify for Orville Babcock. Some people think it was to, to protect his own hide, but I think it was he was just so sick of scandals at this point that uh, he, this was just the hill he was going to die on. It really destroyed his public credibility. Again, this is near the end of his term, but it's 1875. Corruption has become the defining characteristic of his administration at this point. Another issue that hits Grant at the end of his presidency is the Panic of 1873 and the Long Depression. Again, the ugly thing that keeps rearing his head with Grant's administration is currency and monetary policy. There were efforts to bimetal the currency, meaning that you would have it backed by both gold and silver. Grant was, again, a, a sound money fiscal Republican that wanted it to just be the gold standard. And he introduced the Coinage Act, which killed the bimetalling and ended the efforts to have silver back the dollar. To make this simple, this had the effect of putting less money in circulation, which raised interest rates and hurt farmers. People shied away from taking on long-term debt, which if you're doing something like building a railroad, really hurts you. So Jay Cook and Company was a large U.S. bank funding the railroads. The scarcity of money and rising interest rates drove the firm into bankruptcy in 1873. 
This set off a ripple effect and railroad building ground to a halt. Businesses started dropping like flies. Unemployment was above 8%, which again, it does not sound as bad as the Great Depression, but this 8% probably hurt a lot more because the government didn't have the safety nets that we had in the 1930s. You know, we weren't trying to put workers directly on government payrolls. 8% of Americans not working without a safety net uh, turned into what was called the Long Depression. It lasted 65 months and ended in 1879. So what is Reconstruction? You know, Reconstruction is how are we going to put America back together? The unions won the war. We have millions of new citizens in the form of ex-slaves. But how are we going to integrate them into society? There's schemes such as Grant had with the annexation of Santo Domingo. No ideas off the table. But one thing is known for sure. Grant knows that there has to be a firm federal hand in Reconstruction. There's people who suggest giving parcels of land to the freed slaves. There's key issues here. There's there's the Ku Klux Klan who's trying to enforce you know segregation still. In the first term for Grant, he's able to really exclude a lot of the former slave owners for say, either because they were Confederate soldiers and had not received their amnesty yet, or they had not, the states had not been readmitted to the Union. You know, for instance, Texas, Mississippi, and Virginia did not elect a president in 1868 because they weren't readmitted to the Union yet. Reconstruction had the Democrats on one hand who just wanted everything to go back the way it was, just without slavery, and just put prominent white planters of the South back in control. As long as the Republicans control the House and the White House, they can hold off the efforts of the local politicians to to undercut and undermine Reconstruction. In the second term, that is not a political reality anymore. Okay, so Grant's hitting some roadblocks. He's had the Credit Mobileer scandal that his vice president has been implicated in. And it's the election of 1872. This election is characterized by a major split in the Republican Party, conservative versus liberal Republicans. Grant runs against Horace Greeley, which is a liberal Republican. And you're probably asking, where's the Democrats in this election? The Democrats wanted to beat Grant so bad that they didn't put up their own candidate, per se, and adopted the liberal Republicans. Grant, he won an electoral landslide, 286 electoral votes to only three. And it definitely didn't help that Greeley died before the electors cast their ballots. So Grant's first term, from a race standpoint, had been defined by enforcement. Grant knew that if there was going to be any hope for the freedmen, it would have to be federally policed. Reconstruction was not going to be put in the hands of the local law officials. It would have to be a federal effort. In 1872, the political tide has changed dramatically. There was the Amnesty Act, which was signed in 1872, which brought the former Confederates back into the political world. Again, we've lost uh, Amos Ackerman at this time, which was probably Grant's best attorney general. In 1873, the Ku Klux Klan was actually offered clemency because the the federal government couldn't really afford the policing of Reconstruction. Republicans were losing congressional seats. And as a result, the political power to enforce Reconstruction dwindled away. We start seeing Jim Crow really take root in the South. The first term is defined by a crusade to protect and embolden and advance the, the cause of former slaves. But now the second term is really the Democrats regaining a foothold in the United States legislatures. States are being readmitted in the the South, 
and regaining a lot of their former power. And the federal government is pretty much helpless to stay on top of Reconstruction in the way that they wanted to before. One of the ugliest events that happened during the Reconstruction was something called the Colfax Massacre. In 1872, the election of the governor of Louisiana was contested. You had, again, the liberal Republicans putting a platform up versus the Republicans. Both claimed victory and both had inaugurations. A judge ruled in favor of Kellogg, who's the Republican candidate. The liberal Republican Democrat McHenry organized raids to take over the offices of the government, and a literal street fight ensued for the post. The militia, who consisted mainly of blacks and freedmen, dug trenches around the Colfax courthouse. Whites were agitating the local populations about black barbarity, saying that blacks were raping women, killing children. And on noon, Easter Sunday, 1873, an essentially paramilitary force consisting of white men took the courthouse and killed fling freedmen. Anywhere from 70 to 150 people perished, depending on which report you go with. Rebel Massacre The outrages upon the freedmen at the town of Colfax in Grant Parish, Louisiana, on the 13th of this month were of a most atrocious character. The bloodthirsty massacre is the most horrible that has occurred since the close of the Civil War. The occurrence arose from hostile opposition of the old rebel element of the state against the present established government of the state and the refusal to pay taxes. This gave rise to bad feeling between the whites and the colored population, a portion of which had been organized to enforce the collection of taxes in that parish or county. The white rebels determined to crush them and for that purpose organized an armed force and marched into the town. The colored force there was driven into the courthouse and was summoned to surrender, which they agreed to do. But in order to expedite, the courthouse was fired, and those not burnt up or suffocated inside were shot down as they attempted to leave the burning building. This really started the dismantling of Reconstruction in the 1870s. It was a real ugly place for Grant to be in. I mean, he couldn't send him federal troops in his mind. I mean, he could have, but he didn't feel he could because he was being looked at as a military dictator. The result of all this was by the 1870s, the Redeemers had taken hold and the former slave owners were back in control of the South, and Jim Crow was the law of the land. For those of us who aren't from the United States and don't know what Jim Crow is, these are a series of laws that are basically, they could be local, they could be state, but they they basically are created to enforce a, a de facto segregation in the South. So separate schools, separate pools, separate water fountains. Basically, it was a, a way of the of the redeemers and former slave owners to assert their control without actually being slave owners. In the election of 1876, you have Rutherford B. Hayes, who's a Republican, running against Samuel Tilden, who was the Democrat. And this is one of the most contested elections in United States history. There's multiple recounts. All the counts were contested multiple times. But... There's a lot of chatter on the streets of Washington, D.C. that Grant might get involved and sway the election to Rutherford B. Hayes because he was a Republican. And Grant, in his swan song as a president, really took the high road and stayed out of it, which resulted in the Compromise of 1877. It awarded the 20 disputed electoral votes to Hayes, but really was a death knell to Reconstruction. Because as a condition of getting those votes, the Republicans had to agree to withdraw the federal troops from the South. And without federal troops in the South, an already waning Reconstruction effort really faltered. And in 1877, Grant's second term as a president ended. But his dreams of possibly having a third term did not end. After he leaves the White House, 
Julia, who hated the White House when she moved in, was loath to leave it, and she became very depressed. So they decided to go on a worldwide tour. They traveled the world. Famously, he meets Otto von Bismarck, and the two men hit it off famously. Bismarck respected Grant immensely from everything he knew about him in the Civil War. Grant was received at the Chinese court, eventually making it back to the United States a little bit too soon to be considered for election for a third time. So Grant gets back from his worldwide travel. He came back to a lot of fanfare, was greeted back in America as a hero, but that that wore off. And by the time the election season came around in 1880, he really wasn't in the running to be a real Republican candidate. So he tried multiple business ventures that failed for different reasons. He ended up having to borrow money from the Vanderbilts to bail him out of some financial problems. He gets sick and uh, develops throat cancer. They're living in New York, and he decides that he's going to start writing his memoirs, mostly because his family's broke and they, they need the money. He starts writing his memoirs and gets sicker and sicker and some days can't even get out of bed. But his family really needs the money, and so he he sticks to it. They end up moving him up to the mountains where he finishes up his book. His memoirs, I've read them, they're, they're very good and very honest. They're a great summation of the war. You can't really look at them as a true memoir because he doesn't talk about his time as a president at all. He just stops after the Civil War. Now, some people say that's because of his sickness, but... While it's a fantastic book, I really would have loved to see what he would have said about his presidency. So, barely having completed his memoirs, he died in Wilton, New York, at the age of 63 on July 23rd, 1885, and was commemorated in Grant's tomb on the Hudson River. Do I think Ulysses S. Grant was a good president? I think he was an average president because he followed on the heels of Lincoln and Johnson was in there. But one thing you have to realize about Lincoln is he would have had a lot of the same issues that Grant had with Reconstruction. Lincoln had a lot of powers to do things during war via executive action that you can't do during peacetime. The Emancipation Proclamation. You can force your will on the enemy when you're at wartime. But when you're at peacetime, you're going to have a lot of the same issues, I think, that Grant had. So while Grant had a tough time seeing the forest from the trees as a politician, he really could never stop looking at the United States government like it was set up like the army. And I think that was his one downfall, besides the fact that he just really did not understand financial matters very well. And I think he's a a fascinating American to me. So how is he perceived? I think in 1885, when he died... It was sad for the nation. There was even Confederate generals who wept when they found out that that he died. Despite the fact that he was the northern general that won the war, he was a a unifying president in a a lot of ways. Not all ways, but in a lot of ways. There was a really national melancholy when he died. But in in the 20th century, there was a lot of negativity around his presidency and his, his, his legacy, specifically around Reconstructions. But there's been kind of a resurgence in the latter part of the 1900s, the 20th century, um, reevaluating some of those issues. And that's one of the beautiful things about evaluating presidents after some time has passed, because it really gives a, a good perspective. 
And while he's not one of the best presidents uh, by a lot of standards, uh, he's starting to make a bit of a comeback. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's finally here, the celebrated, the much-anticipated President Grant episode of 10 American Presidents. Uh, this show is extremely special, not only for the fact that it's taken about nine months um, in terms of me editing it off and on, actually, to get it done, but also the fact that this is going to be the 11th president of the series. Listener Adam Vanami, who's now become a very close friend, petitioned me uh, some 18 months ago to get Grant on the list and I said uh, there wasn't space for him uh, it was 10 presents we are going to do um, but he didn't give up and he said he would like to narrate it and I think we can all agree that Adam did an amazing job so thank you for all of your work that you put into this Adam this show has really been a collaborative effort um, I need to give you a roll call of all of the listeners who have contributed um, either 
by doing readings or by just uh, giving me um, great moral support. They are Zana Ace in Canada, Lani Bihar in America, Andrew Mentz in the UK, Daniel Kolsalek um, in New York, Fiona Powell, Hayes Dial, Joseph Hawkins, Melissa Weeb, Scott Caro, Keith Shovlin, James Bolton, Nabil Qureshi, Jose Jimenez and David Hazen all gave readings uh, for the show and I think you can all agree that those newspaper clippings uh, really do add another dimension to the show. Now many of you will know that uh, podcasting is actually what I do as a full-time job and um, it doesn't pay that well but I do love what I do. This show took about um, 200 and odd hours uh, to produce, uh, whether that's research, whether that's editing time, etc. Um, if you would like to donate, please, um, any spare change that you have, you can donate by either going on to the site 10usp.com or you can go to patreon.com and um, go and pledge some money each month because, boy, do I, do I need it. 10 American Presidents um, is a passion of mine, but it is somewhat of a lost leader. Um, there's no way to say it, but I'll, you know, if I'm spending this amount of time to produce a show, I don't expect um, to make a profit out of it. So if, so if you can help uh, the production along with a few spare cents or pennies, that'll be great. Um, if you can't do that, what you can do is go onto iTunes and please write us a positive review. Um, I know that not everybody loves 10 American Presidents. I know that diehard listeners do know that what I'm trying to do is to create cinema for the years. And some people don't want the cinema, they just want the narration. But if you do um, appreciate the time and the effort that goes into the production, please go onto iTunes or a similar podcatcher and write a positive review. Again, um, thank you, Adam, for the amazing job that you did. If you want to email me about anything, you can by emailing me on royfield at gmail.com. If you'd like to join the five, six hundred nod listeners who are part of our Facebook group, you can by going onto Facebook and typing in 10 American Presidents. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, or you can follow the show's feed, which is also on Twitter, which is 10USP. Um, I think that's just about it. I'm going to try and get these shows maybe on a monthly or maybe a six-weekly cycle again. Um, you won't have to wait another nine months for another show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans... Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.